Very glad that you're here today. And if you're new, welcome. Whether you're joining us online or in person, very glad that God moved in your heart to be part of what's going to unfold. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 11, and I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible to go there, uh, maybe electronically or hard copy. Find your way to the book of John in the New Testament, chapter 11. Very familiar story. I'll allow you to take a minute to get there, and I'm going to pray with you. Um, if you have opportunity, we're obviously only two weeks away from Easter. If it's possible for those who attend this service to choose to attend the 815 service, <laughs> or the 1130 service, okay, because um, there's three services coming up, 815, 945, 1130, and I already know by the laugh that many of you will choose the 1130, um, uh, but we, we understand um, you know, schedules are com complicated, but it would help, especially when it comes to parking issues. Um, we moved to this new building thinking we had plenty of parking space, and that is no longer the case. So um, keep that in mind as we, we get close to Easter. This is such a, a crucial, crucial passage in Jesus' walk. If you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about where would Jesus, the weeks leading up to Easter morning and, and to the crucifixion, and we're now two weeks out, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. What was Jesus doing two weeks before? So to really focus us on what we're going to look at in this passage, I would ask that you would join me in prayer and that our focus would be solely on what God wants us to hear. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what Joe showed us in communion this morning. And even if we do have bad photos they don't appear bad to you once we're in you. You take away all our sin, all our imperfections, all the muddiness of our life, and you see us as holy and righteous and redeemed because of what Jesus did. He's what we want to focus on now, Father. We want to see what the Son did in respect of what was before him, two weeks ahead of him, and how resolute and determined. So God, I ask that you give us clarity to see things we couldn't see on our own, things that we maybe have not seen before, and use those things, Father, to affect our life in the way that we walk before you and the way we walk before our social circle. Use us, God. We pray for this in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. If you have a watch with you this morning, you might want to set that aside because it's not going to do you any good, okay? This will be the longest teaching I have ever done in the history of New Hope bar none. Aren't you excited? <laughs> Don't worry. Already told Debbie, and she knows in the children's ministry, that it's likely going to go longer. It did in the last service. Just kind of buckle up, okay? We step back two weeks before the crucifixion, and we understand that Jesus is on this very direct path, and we're asked this question, what was he doing as he's walking at this moment in time? Here's what I want you to picture for this moment. Just Get this in your head and pause on it. Picture God standing in a cemetery. All of his humanity on display. There's a huge crowd around him. And the if only question is being thrown around freely and it's being directed at Jesus. Hold that thought. We saw last week that Jesus, as he was making his way towards Jerusalem, he stopped in Jericho, 
we saw he's on this very deliberate final turn toward Jerusalem. And we saw what Luke amplified. And he he'd said this had happened months and months earlier. Look at with me at Luke 9.51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. You might remember last week that I said that approaching, when the days were approaching, in another translation it would say fulfilled, when the days were fulfilled. It was this image that the Greek language used of a boat that's been completely swamped with water. In other words, there was no more room for anything else. It was filled up to the brim, meaning he's fulfilled everything that he had to do, and now he's determined to go to Jerusalem. Well, for something to be filled up, to be completely filled to that point, that means there had to have been a plan. Otherwise, how would you know when you've reached the fill point? Well, the plan was that God would rescue the world through the seed of a woman. We examined that in the book of Genesis. So when Jesus made this turn and set his face toward Jerusalem, he began this very calculated, very resolute walk toward the cross for each of us. So as we come into two weeks before, we recognize everything that has happened before this moment, all that has preceded is completely foundational. All things that had to happen because of what God said would happen in that one. Let me clarify it this way. Before the beginning of time, in the time before time, a foundational criterion was established by the Godhead. Things that that one, the Messiah, would accomplish while he was here so that people could look at him and point to him and say, that's the one. Uh, some theologians speculate there's over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament that were pointing toward the one. More rationally, I think 300 is probably more accurate, maybe a little less than that. But catch this detail. Maybe you've never really wondered what it takes to fulfill those prophecies before, but hear this. So there was a brilliant research that was done by a professor at a university and, and used a lot of his academic assistance to study this detail. If you took just eight of the prophecies that were announced in the Old Testament that were fulfilled specifically in Jesus in that point in time, it would require the odds. The odds of that actually happening in one person, just eight of them, would be a one with 17 zeros after it. Eight. So whether there's 200 or 300 or 400 prophecies, I don't know. I'm not the expert on that. But just for eight of them to be fulfilled in that one person, showing that all the criterion was being established so that that which now unfolds in these final two weeks is actually the crescendo, the crescendo to God's eternal plan for his rescue to unfold. And in the end, the one who fulfilled it all will truthfully be able to stand literally on the cross and say it's finished. I've completed it all. So we come into John 11, and I'm going to ask you to go to John 11, and it starts in verse 1, and we are going to hit all 42 verses of the story. So today, we're still two weeks out. Where is he? He left Jericho. Apparently, he went into the region on the east side of the Jordan, what we call the Jordanian territory today. There's a king of Jordan today. This is the region that Jesus is in. He was in Jericho. He healed a blind man, and he went into Jordan, and the story picks up with mentioning a city called Bethany, and Bethany is the hometown of Jesus' three very good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. 
And he's very familiar with them. He's been to their homes apparently multiple times. They appear to be in their 20s. It doesn't appear that the women are married yet. Mary and Martha still appear to be single, and Lazarus likely as well, but they're brothers and sister. And here's where it picks up with us going into the scene, looking over the shoulder of John, and John is an eyewitness. He writes these things because he actually saw them happen. Verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Uh, Picture Bethany like you might picture Okemos or Grand Ledge or DeWitt to Lansing proper. It's about two miles outside of the capital city of Jerusalem. It's a suburb. You can't actually find it on a map today, but we know that it's located within a couple miles. And he calls out specifically, Mary, the one who anointed the Lord with ointment. And he has to do that because there's so many Marys in the New Testament. He has to get very specific. This is the one who wiped Jesus' feet, who anointed him with oil. John's acknowledging what everybody in the first century knew, but he's bearing down on this one. This is that one. So apparently Jesus is a frequent guest, and he's very close to this family. He spent a lot of time in their home, and so they seem very confident that he's going to come immediately. They're going to respond to his request, so they send a hand-delivered message. Your grid friend is sick. They use this word phileo. You're going to feel like I'm teaching you the Greek language this morning. I'm not. I'm not that good at it myself, but phileo is brotherly love it's talking about. The one that you're fond of, the one you're attached to. Guys, think of somebody you might go bowling with or maybe go hunting with or fishing with. It's somebody you've done life with. And that's what the sisters are saying. This one whom you're attached to, whom you've done life with, is really sick. And we're not told what the illness is. The Greek word that's used there is actually just talking about any sickness in general. But the disease must be very, very serious, enough that they think he's not going to make it. And they're so distressed that they're willing to call Jesus back, even though there's a price on his head, which is no secret to the community. That's how convinced they are that death is imminent. So the sisters assume that because of Jesus' abilities and because of his close relationship, he's going to respond immediately. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And if you're new to the Bible, you're reading that saying, what? Did I read that right? Wait, I thought you said he was really attached to him. He's staying two days longer? See, John has really gone out of his way to let us know that this family is tight with Jesus. And it's exactly because of that relationship that makes what happens here so puzzling. Instead of taking the first flight back, he decides to wait. John eleven six. he then stayed two days longer. A little survey. Can you identify with the emotion of frustration when it comes to the issue of God not responding in the time that you want him to respond? I bet that's universal. God, I need you to intervene now. I need you now, this moment in time. It's an emergency, God. Come. 
But God is never, never in a hurry. Ever. We want him to be, but God's never in a hurry. Why? And I don't mean to simplify this or oversimplify this. The reason is because there's always an alternate bigger purpose. You'll see that as that comes out this morning. The purpose is the glory of God. And Jesus has already announced that in verse 4. For the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. As difficult as this is, New Hope, for us to get our minds around it, and your church people, think about how hard this is for individuals who have not a relationship with God and don't understand the Bible. As hard as this is for us to get our minds around this, hear me on this. Any crisis that comes into your life, any trauma that comes into your life, when that crisis brings glory to God, is a good crisis. That's a really mature position. That's a really mature biblical follower that can say that. Any crisis is good when that crisis brings glory to God, when God is magnified. Unfortunately, not every crisis brings glory to God, does it? Why is that? Not every trauma brings God glory, because for good to come out of a trauma, it requires the person going through the trauma to actually belong to God. Let me amplify that. Many of you know Romans 8, 28. Look with me at this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. As much as we want Romans 8, 28 to be first about us, it is first and foremost about God, and it's about His purposes, and His purpose is the glory of God. God causes all things to work together for good does not mean all things are good, but when God uses it for His purposes and He's glorified, He will cause all things to work together for good to those who love Him, meaning if you belong to Jesus, you're in relationship with Him. Trust me on this, even mature believers do not see the full picture when it comes to this issue because we want God to intervene. And when God doesn't intervene, it frustrates us. When he doesn't intervene in the way that we want, we can perceive a failure on God's part because God's objectives often are not our objectives. So God's delay in bringing help frustrates us because of our perspective. And our perspective is to avoid all pain. I don't know about you, but this is where I stand. I have a very strong natural aversion to suffering. How about you? I would like to avoid it at all possible cost. So we have a very strong natural aversion to suffering, especially our own. So a crisis like this in John chapter 11... It usually morphs into a crisis of belief. And the crisis of belief surfaces this way. What do you believe about God? What do you really believe about God? Because what you believe about God determines what you do next. That's the kind of crisis you're going to see God call Mary and Martha out on this very issue. Now back to the story. 
A running messenger needs at least a half a day to get from Bethany to where Jesus is at in the Jordan if they're really fast. Probably most people would do it in three quarters of a day. It takes a bit of a time to get there, to reach Jesus and get across the Jordan. So in my understanding of the timeline, the way that this develops and unfolds, Lazarus actually dies before the messenger ever reaches Jesus. Let me show you the events, the way I understand these four days leading up to what you're going to see Jesus do. In day one, the messenger comes to Jesus. The one whom you love, he's really, really sick. But I think that's when Lazarus actually dies. I'll show you why in just a moment. Now understand that people rarely travel at nighttime in the first century. Because of thieves and robbers, they usually will go to a region and then they will stay where they're at and leave the next day. So day two, the messenger actually returns, but Jesus, we're told, stays. And day three, Jesus stays another day. And day four, Jesus arrives in Bethany. Now imagine that you're a disciple. You're one of the 12 and you've just overheard Jesus speak to the messenger. And he has said openly, publicly for people to hear, this sickness, it's not going to end in death. This is for the glory of God. But the messenger goes back to Bethany, and he's back in Bethany, and the messenger arrives, and he finds that Lazarus is already dead. How can that be for good? How can this trauma be all things working together for good? What does that kind of message convey to the grieving family? Their brother's already dead. He's already in the grave. Did Jesus miss something? Maybe he just didn't understand how sick he was. How can this possibly be for the glory of God? So what the disciples hear next, according to what John tells us, stuns them. Because they don't see this coming. Jesus is ready now to return to Bethany. And so they begin arguing with him. Watch verse 7. This is after the two-day delay. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let's, let us go to Judea again. Now, tone is everything when you're reading the Bible. When you read verses, you've got to understand the emotion going behind it. I think this is the accurate tone. Catch this in verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? I think that's the right tone. Because you're not going to read that like some high church dude, like, Rabbi. <laughs> they were just seeking to stone you. No. You're going to be emotional about this because you're afraid for your life and his life. So Jesus answers with a parable. He's always pulling out these parables, but it's a very simple one. Verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, it's pretty obvious that the disciples are not exactly enthusiastic. They fear for their life, and they fear for Jesus' life. And so verse 8 says, they're seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? If ever there was a wait what moment in the Bible? This is it. Wait, What? You want to go back there? How about if we just hang out here? Why would you leave this area? You're having a very productive time. It's safe here. You're healing lots of people. There's big crowds. You've already said Lazarus isn't going to die. Besides, you've healed other people from a distance. Why not this one? 
The disciples obviously haven't read Luke chapter 9 yet. He set his face to go toward Jerusalem. They're living it. But they actually aren't catching what's going on and what Jesus is focused on. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's all part of the plan. It's all part of God's strategy. Jesus is walking in conviction. So he clarifies it with a super simple parable in which he says, the one who walks in the day, that one does not stumble. Here's how simple it is. He's really just speaking to our obligation to do the Father's work, to bring God glory. And he's saying this in spite of the danger. The cross is before me. I have very clear focus. So if you deviate or if you wander from that clear focus of what God calls you to do, that's walking in the darkness. That's what John wrote in a later letter, 1 John 1. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Back to the story. Now remember, John's an eyewitness to this, and he recalls something. He recalls the dramatic pause that Jesus just allowed the room to go quiet so that it would sink in. And then he says this, verse 11, this he said, and after that he said to them, that's the pause, our friend, our phylos, our good buddy, Lazarus, has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus has been operating with them on a need-to-know basis, but he's about to reveal his power to reach beyond this world into a realm that belongs only to God. So he has to speak emphatically with them now because the disciples are assuming that sleep means he's getting better that the illness is going away and it's past the crisis stage. So Jesus has to say in verse 14, so Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Verse 14 is unmistakable evidence that I see of Jesus' omniscience. He knew things before anybody could tell him the messenger only told him that Lazarus was sick. He already knows that Lazarus is dead. There's no way he could know that he died without the omniscient power of God working. Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad I was not there. Now, if you're one of the 12, what a strange contradiction. Like, what? You're glad that he's dead? You're, how does that work for our benefit? How can Lazarus' death be a benefit to us? Why would you be glad that you're not there? Now, in the midst of this conversation, loyalty emerges, and we, we see a deep loyalty to Jesus that's revealed, this clear willingness to step into danger. John eleven sixteen. therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Okay, I don't get it, but I'm in. Uh, it, it appears that most of the disciples are in their 20s. And you may think it's, oh, okay, they don't have as much to live for. Not true. A lot to live for, but they've already given up everything to follow Jesus. 
And Jesus has said to them multiple times, if I go back there, they're going to arrest me. And Thomas is assuming that they're going to execute him also. And he says, I'm all in. Let's, let's go do this. Because they expect Jesus to be seized at a minimum. So verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So in, in the tomb four days means it becomes very, very clear that Lazarus died soon after this messenger left. And if you're in the Middle East and you have a dead body, decomposition begins really, really fast. So even in the first century, they're doing it still today. When somebody dies, they try and bury them the day that they died. There, there isn't an embalming process. They usually will bury them the same day. So interestingly enough, the arrival of the third day in this particular world in the first century, it signaled something for people. It signaled the last day of hope. Because there was this strong belief, and it's in the ancient rabbinic writings, that there was this concept that the spirit of a dead person would linger for three days afterwards. So Jews waited many times, thinking there might be some degree of hope that maybe this person is just in a coma, or maybe they got knocked out, or maybe their breathing is so shallow and their heartbeat is so much of a faint whisper, we just can't hear it. But after three days of not eating and not drinking, by the fourth day, they knew that person was dead, 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 dead. Therefore, the Jews recognized that in that case, only God, only a miracle could bring life back. But John throws in this detail, he says in verse 19, that many of the Jews came. That means many of the hierarchy of Israel. They came from Jerusalem. They're there for the Passover, lots of people in town, and they came to console Mary and Martha. Now, Lazarus's funeral, therefore, is then a major event in the community. Apparently, this family is really connected with the hierarchy of Israel, since many of the elite have come. A detail that goes along with this is that at funeral processions, men walked in one line and women walked in another line. They would escort the family to the cemetery. And after the burial, they would linger for seven days. Seven days of mourning with the family. That explains why they're still there four days afterwards. It was part of the 30-day mourning process. Now remember, it's the brother, which means he's the wage earner for the family. That means this is intense loss because their financial future is at stake here. So from a human point of view, this really large crowd is gathered to console Martha and Mary. But from God's eternal plan, they're actually there to witness the majesty of the I Am, the creator of life. Verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And the actions of the two sisters are really in keeping with what we know of them. Martha appears to be the firstborn, and she's a homemaker. She's very, very good at keeping details and keeping things in order. But Mary is a people person. And she tends to people, people's needs. 
So Martha keeps the household in check. Mary's the one who's talking and dealing with people. So that explains why Martha is the first one out the door, and she comes charging out to meet Jesus. Well, Mary's still at home with people, and Martha has her big sister hat on with her big sister agenda. And the distressing thought that is foremost in her mind has been there for four days now. And it burst right out of her as soon as she sees Jesus. Verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I, I hope I'm reading this in the right context and seeing this the way that it is, but I, I think there's this going on. Why weren't you here? And I don't believe it's done in a rebuke. I think it's done because her heart is broken. And you can clearly see the situation from her point of view is now hopeless because Martha wanted Jesus to prevent Lazarus' death. And there's no sense of hope in her voice whatsoever. Martha and Mary and all the disciples, they certainly know about the resurrection of the widow's son and they know about Jairus' daughter. Is it that they didn't make the connection that Jesus could do the same for Lazarus? Or... Is it the bigger issue of the four days? Four days now. There's no possibility. So Jesus responds to her. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's thinking in terms of the expectation of a general resurrection. The last days of planet Earth when there will be a resurrection of the dead. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And so by Jesus' own statement, there's no question. He's dead. He's gone to Sheol. He's no longer among the living. So she has to come to the resolution. I know. I know he will rise again in the resurrection. And Jesus responds to her, I am the resurrection. That is me that you're looking at. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is walking in unmistakable conviction about who he is and why he came. And see this as it's surpassing Martha's understanding. She thought she knew. He's been to her house to eat. He's been in her community. They've broken bread together. She's come to this place of understanding of who she understands Jesus to be. But in truth, he's been unknown to her in the full sense. And so he has to say, ego, EMI, I am. The same statement that God made on Mount Sinai to Moses, I am that I am. This is the fifth of the I am statements in the book of John in which Jesus declared who he is. And here he clarifies, I am the resurrection. You hope, I hope everybody within my voice this morning, virtually and in person, understands this. In Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Without him, you have no hope. There will be an end to your physical, biological life. It will come to an end. It is the end. The body goes into the ground. It returns to dust or to ashes. Until the resurrection, when God calls those bodies back forth again. But for the believer, for the believer in Jesus Christ at death, the eternal portion of your soul instantly goes to be with Jesus Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord if you belong to Jesus. 
He's giving her a direct theology class, and he's challenging Martha to move from head knowledge to heart knowledge. Do you understand who you have in front of you? To move to complete faith in who and what he is. Verse 25, let's go with a full statement. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. I love that Jesus added the question at the end. Do you believe this? The question stands the test of time. Do you, this morning, Do you believe this? Do you own this? Jesus is saying, he who believes in me, that one's going to live even if he dies physically. Martha's been thinking end of the age. She's been thinking of the end of the age, daily planet Earth, resurrection. But Jesus has to clarify for her. Because God has the capacity to resurrect Eternal life cannot be extinguished by physical death. As a result, every one of you this morning who are in Jesus Christ, every one of you, whether you're at home right now or you're in this auditorium, you can say, if you're in Jesus Christ, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Because Jesus has resurrected me eternally already. If you believe in Jesus, you are already in him. You just need to switch addresses. You will go to be with him one day. Do you believe this? See, Jesus is not asking her to believe that he's about to raise her brother. She doesn't know that's coming. He's calling her to personally trust that he is the source of life, the resurrection power. So eternal life is looking her directly in the eye, and he's asking for a personal response. I'm going to ask you for that personal response this morning. Where do you stand? And this is a strong personal command to believe in Jesus in the midst of trauma. You're going through crisis right now? That's the hardest time to actually believe. That's the most difficult time. And that's what you see Jesus doing when she's in the midst of trauma. He's calling her to believe even in the midst of the crisis. And he's refocusing her. So her response is very straightforward, and I see it almost, I won't even say it. Read it with me. Verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. This, this echoes to me of Peter's response. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. She's acknowledged in three very clear statements that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is he who comes into the world. I have believed that. And alongside Martha's story is Mary's story. And she's still in the house and she's being comforted. Watch verse 28. When she said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So evidently, Jesus has sent Martha to get Mary. He's not entered the village, and she comes to her sister and whispers secretly, he's here. 
wants to talk with you. She wants her to have a private meeting before everybody else realizes that Jesus is actually there, but her fast departure catches the attention of the crowd. They think she's going to the tomb to weep, and it's customary to follow her. But the bigger picture is God is orchestrating the events and the circumstances to fit his purposes. So John notes this very specifically. They followed her. Because John wants you to understand who the crowd was that was there. The hierarchy of Israel, the elite of the elite, those who had come to comfort and those who were there to witness. So this scene that unfolds here begins with intense, full sorrow and genuine pain. And you'll notice that Mary's conversation is not like Martha's conversation. It's more reflective of Mary's personality. Watch how she responds. Verse 32, therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet. That's a people person. And she's crying out to the one whom she had anointed previously with oil. And she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. This is going to require your imagination, but I know most everybody in this auditorium and on screen has been to a funeral. And we're told that Mary is weeping and wailing because of the word that's used here. And I, I tell you again, I'm not trying to teach you Greek. The word that's used here is klio. And it means to wail or lament loudly. But you have to contrast what's going on with the mourners that are there and Mary and Martha themselves to what we're told about Jesus. We're told Jesus is deeply moved. And the word is embryomyomai. To be angry? What? To have your nostrils flare with indignation? Why would Jesus be angry in a graveyard? And it connotates outrage. Well, he's not raging with the sisters. He's been comforting them. And then John adds this extra word, the word terrasso. Back when washing machines had a center agitator, you could picture that, where water would be roiled up. It would, the agitator in the center would do that. It would turn the water. This is the same concept here in Tarasso. John's emphasizing the intensity of Jesus' reaction, and he's describing a very strong emotion. Here's how you can picture it. Remember the Christmas story when the Magi arrive in Jerusalem, and we're told that all of Jerusalem was troubled Tarasso. They were overwhelmed with what was going to happen next because Herod was so wicked. Or when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, Tarasso, in so much fear, so troubled by what they were seeing in front of their eyes. John's emphasizing that kind of intensity. And then comes verse 35, which is the favorite of every child who ever went to Sunday school. Jesus wept. Because when your teacher asked you if you could memorize scripture, you could always go to John eleven thirty five. 35. If you say you can't memorize scripture, just memorize that one. You got two words down, you're good with that? Jesus wept, but you need to understand what's going on behind here. 
Verse 36 says, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. Jesus wept is not Clio. It's not loud lamenting. It's not wailing. Jesus wept is a very rare word. It's only used one time in the New Testament, and it's used right here. Dakuru. To burst into tears silently. Picture God in a cemetery. It is the nature of our God to know us in every single way possible. You've known loss. God has known great loss. The one who spoke the universe into existence is crying inside a cemetery, fully God and yet fully man. And in context, when Mary arrives on the scene, she is crushed with sorrow. And Jesus looks on his friends and he looks on the people surrounding them. He's moved to indignation. How do you understand this? His walk toward the cross in unrelenting conviction has once again brought him face to face with the reality of what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve traded in God for a piece of fruit. And in this moment, you can almost hear the echo of the ancient voices. When you hear God call out to Adam in Genesis chapter 3, Adam, where are you? I was afraid of you. So I, I ran and hid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? In those moments, sin and death came crushing into our world, and death instantly and forcefully stormed its way in, becoming the freaking king of life. And because of sin, the wages of sin is death. And God the Son is moved with overwhelming emotion as he approaches this tomb. He's not trying to keep inside his humanity. He doesn't want it buried deep within, but he weeps openly. And whoever told you that grown men don't cry, they lied to you. Because Jesus was the most manly man that ever lived. And his tears here are emerging for a different reason. It's not grief over Lazarus. He has this situation well in hand. Your brother will rise again. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Jesus' tears do not reflect the hopeless despair like all of the humans surrounding him. The shortest verse in the Bible is rich with meaning, incredibly rich with meaning. Jesus' tears surge from deep within, generated over his grief by the massacre that sin brought when it invaded our world. The, the writer of Hebrews captures this very well in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It talks about this exact issue. Look with me at this. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and I, since we share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death are subject to slavery all their lives. Are you afraid of death this morning? Is it the freaking king of your life? Are you subject to the slavery and the chains 
of death? Well, if you're not in Jesus, you should be afraid of it. The Bible is painting the picture very clearly that death is not perfectly natural. It is not what God intended. It is not God's original design. Death is not some friendly human phenomena. The Bible actually calls it the enemy. Look at me on the screen, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Ultimately, praise God for Jesus Christ, it will be destroyed by God and thrown into the lake of fire. It will not haunt you for all eternity. It will be abolished, and it will join Satan and the demons in hell. To deal with that enemy requires the Lord of life. But verse 37 ends with these individuals who have gathered around questioning Jesus' power. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? You, you notice how fresh in their mind the healing that took place in Jericho is? They're very well aware. It's right on the tip of their minds. Couldn't he fix this? But Jesus, for his part, he's still under the same emotional tension of agitation, verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb, embryomyomai. But Jesus, for his part, still snorting at the nostrils, still filled with indignation. John 11, now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. See, Martha's in a panic. She's the firstborn, and she's used to things being orderly, and there's nothing orderly about a dead body. She wants to keep things in order. She doesn't want her brother remembered this way. So she says in verse 39, by this time there will be a stench. If you've ever been near something that's been dead four days, you know. Four days dead in the Middle East. That's why they use spices to anoint the body, to keep the smell of decay away. A rotting corpse will overpower the surrounding area. Yet Jesus says, remove the stone. And to do so will expose you to ritual defilement if you were a Jew living in the first century. But they did it anyways. And the crowd watches, and the crowd listens, and Mary is weeping, and Martha is objecting, her hands to her nose. We don't want our brother remembered in this way. Verse 40, Jesus said, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? He's talking to Martha, but he's speaking to everybody living in 2022. He's speaking to the disciples. This is for the glory of God, that God's Son might be glorified through it. And I want you to notice the intentional structure used by Jesus. If you believe, you will see. It's not the other way around. You will see and then you will believe. God says, if you believe, you will see. So for the sisters filled with grief and for the disciples who are living in fear and all the spectators and all the skeptics who are watching, to anyone who seeks to know God, Jesus calls for faith first, sight later. And the time has come to witness the glory of God. How you doing on time? You want to leave?
suck it up. Watch what God does. Verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And with a stone taken away, the tension mounts. And what now? We reach this moment of breathlessness. What a contrast. The king of life stands before an open grave and nothing appears. There's no sign of life. All are looking and listening, and God speaks to God about us. So that they may believe. The prayer is not for Jesus. It's not even for Lazarus. It's for every individual who needs to see and hear the inconceivable. Verse 43. When he, said, said, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And if you think I'm exaggerating by doing it that way, I don't think I was loud enough. The word that's actually used is kalarugo, and it means to shout. Why shouting? Why such a loud exclamation? His voice obviously immediately captures the attention of everyone. Was it necessary in order for Lazarus to actually hear him? I don't know, perhaps, I don't know. One thing is certain, there's no question who's in command. No one can possibly misunderstand what Jesus has just said. Some of you have probably read it before, but Augustine said many hundreds of years ago that had Jesus not called Lazarus by name, all the dead in all the tombs would have risen. Might be right. Here's what I do know. One day in the future, this is exactly what will happen. John 5, 28. An hour is coming in which who, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. At the command, at the shout, there will be a resurrection and death will be robbed of its victory. Verse 44. The man who had died, came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. If you had been there that day and understood what he said in Aramaic, the Greek translation is this, Lazarus, here, outside. Oh, to have been there that day. Oh, to have seen that stumbling man moving toward the very familiar voice that he had recognized sitting in his living room. He staggers into the Mediterranean sunlight wearing only the wrappings of grave cloths. Scripture is very clear. What a contrast in structure. The man who had died came forth. Because the one who is the resurrection and the life crushes death. Eternal life vaporizes hopelessness. This new hope is but a mere taste of God's power. Jesus reaches across the vast chasm of the valley of death and commands those who are held by the chains of death to be set free. Have you been set free by Jesus this morning? 
He reached into your life and called you his own and brought you into the kingdom of the redeemed because you believed what Jesus said he does. He forgives you of your sins and restores and brings new life. It's very easy to imagine the onlookers as they're staring in shock. This mummied guy comes stumbling out of the tomb, so shocked to the degree that Jesus has to actually tell them to unwrap him. That tells you how stunned they are. But that's not the end. Here comes the end. John closes with an insight. You wouldn't know this from anyone but an eyewitness that leads us directly into the next week ahead as Jesus moves towards the cross in Jerusalem. Verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So the raising was intentionally done by God in public so that all the viewers, even the influential onlookers from the capital city, would be eyewitnesses. And as a result, not even the enemies of Jesus would be able to deny his power. All of the prophecies of the Old Testament fulfilled in one person. And beyond that, we learn in that statement that Jesus' own prayer is fulfilled. Father, I'm not saying this for my benefit. I know that you always hear me. I'm saying it for these individuals that they may believe. And John tells us that's exactly what they did. He prayed that they would believe and they believed that you may believe living in 2022. If the wages of sin is death, everyone born into this world is born into death. It's just a matter of time. Physically we'll die spiritually born dead as well because we're born into sin. Paul writes, we are alienated from the life of God. The most unsettling aspect of death is that we have no control over it. When Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, he said, you might as well try and harness the wind. You don't have power over that, meaning we're completely helpless in the face of death. Lazarus could not resurrect himself from the tomb. His sisters could not call him back. His friends could not call him back. No mere man's voice could pierce the depths of the tomb. But Jesus can. Jesus can bring life. And here is where light breaks in. Here is where God is glorified. The resurrection and the life comes on the scene and everything changes so that you may believe. See, this is a strong personal command to believe even in the midst of crisis in your life. To believe that Jesus, in him, there is life, there is forgiveness. And I hope everybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ, especially after taking communion this morning, would join me in saying amen, even regardless of your past. Amen. Hear it again. In Jesus, there is new life. There is complete forgiveness, even regardless of your past. Even if you're dead in your sin. See John 3.16 in that way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him 
I don't care what your past is. God says, you believe in me, I will wipe out your sins as far as the east is from the west. I will remember them no more. And Jesus died for your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. That's why he could say, it's finished. That tells me that there's no one beyond the reach of Jesus. You can know this morning the same new life in Jesus. If you're new to church, you need to know that Jesus won a victory for you when he conquered sin and death. If you will believe in faith, he will take away all your sin. And he can pronounce you completely forgiven and completely destined for heaven if you will believe. When the last day comes for you, and it will, no one's figured out how to escape death yet. Before that day, you'll have to answer the greatest question that's ever been asked. And it was asked by God himself. John eleven twenty six 26 says, do you believe this? And I'm asking you that this morning. I'm going to ask you to be very bold when the service ends. If you want to know more about these things, if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and know that he's forgiven you of your sins, I'm going to ask you to come here to the front, and I will be standing down here to meet you. The elders of this church will be here. Pastors of this church will be here. If you want to have somebody pray with you, go to the prayer room and they will pray with you. We'll pray with you here. We'll pray with you there. This is that important. It is the ultimate question. Everyone has to decide how they're going to answer this before they die. So what you believe about God determines what you do. What are you going to do next? I'm going to pray for us right now that if you need to receive Jesus and you feel the Holy Spirit moving you to do that, that you would not shut that down and move that away from your life and just run for your car. Rather, run to the stage. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the reality of the truth that has just been proclaimed through your word and the clarity you've given us through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no mistaking what you have called us to do, to believe upon you that you are the resurrection and the life. I pray, Father, for those who need to know that they've been forgiven of their sins and need this new life that we're talking about. God, unleash the power of your Holy Spirit. Move among us now. Draw individuals into your kingdom. Father, I pray for all of us that you would send us out this week with your blessing on us for having studied your word and use us and remind us often, God, that we carry the greatest message the world has ever known. Use us, God. I pray for these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ our Lord and all God's people said. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.